Um, Boris, you're up next. Uh, hey, Tom. Um, so my karma right now is about uh, my karma. <laughs> my question is about karma and lineage. Um, I met a really nice therapist, um, really good at what he's doing. And one of the information gave me that uh, one of my blocks for my evolution was a heavy karma and also heavy lineage. Um, so heavy you know, karma like, and heavy what? What was that uh, last lineage, one? You know, ancestors, I would say. Ah, like, okay. Yeah. And so, uh, as you know, I'm quite intuitive right now, hopefully, and skeptical. So, of course, I tuned into it. I checked my data. And there is a resonance for my ancestors, but for the karma, it's like, hmm. So, my question is about, actually, I have two questions in one. The first one is like, when I'm tuning to it, I'm kind of feeling that there is no past life, that is more parallel, and I don't know if, uh, if it's true or not. And the other question is about um, if karma is actually an illusion that we picked up from that PMR. I think karma is it's one of these these ideas that fundamentally there is this there is this thing that we can call karma, but it's really very simple and it's not complex at all. And what it says is that if you don't learn your lesson now you get to learn it again some other time. And if you don't learn it then, well, you get another chance. Like, you just keep working at something until you get it. So if you have anger issues and you have anger issues for the last 50 incarnations, well, you'll just keep working with those anger issues until you outgrow them, until you get over them. Okay. Now, that simple idea is that you don't, you, you don't advance, you don't grow up until you've done the work. You know, it's just that simple. You don't pass just because, well, I've been trying a long time, so why don't, I, why don't you just advance me, you know, for the effort I've put in? No, you either do the work or you don't grow up. Well, that's the very simple concept. And I think that's where karma comes from. It says, well, okay, I had this, this incarnation. I did some bad things. Now I'm going to have to overcome that because before I was grown up to this level and now I did a lot of bad things and I de-evolved a little bit and I'm down here. I'm going to have to, you know, chug back up there to go higher again because I've de-evolved. So it's a matter of evolution and de-evolution. So there's no free pass. And to me, that's all karma is. But now people take that simple idea that there is no free pass, that you you have to do the work before you before you evolve, and that if you de-evolve, now you've got extra work to do to get back to where you were. They take that idea and, I don't know, package it in all kinds of interesting ways. Well, okay, you know, I was a murderer in the last life, and I shot somebody, so somebody's going to have to shoot me in this life because that's karma, you know. Well, that's to me, is just stretching it a lot. It doesn't mean that whatever it is you did, that something just like that's going to have to happen to you. It just means that that's what you did. You're going to have to do things that that outgrow that. Now, maybe being murdered would be a good thing to show you that that isn't nice. You know, if you were on the other, you know, seeing the other side of the picture might be something that would help, but not necessarily. That may not be a, 
so much help. Well, if it's not so much help, then you're not going to do it. So there's nothing that says, oh, if you did this, it has to happen to you. So I think karma has been institutionalized into a lot of very particular stuff in people's minds when really it's just the simple idea that there is no free pass, that you've got to evolve by doing the work. And if you de-evolve, you've got even more work to do. And it doesn't matter whether that takes, you know, one lifetime or 10,000 lifetimes. It'll take as long as it takes. And that's basically, to me, that's the concept of karma. And it's been sliced and diced and made into a consumer product that's, that's, I don't know, you know, easier to sell, more fun to talk about, you know. So that's my view of, of karma. It's not really as much as it's made out to be. It's just a simple, basic fact of no free lunch. Right. Thanks, you, Tom. Um, I have another question which is related to that. Um, so basically, when I'm tuning into that, like, particular life which is stuck, I would say, it's funny because I'm always getting that this is not a past life, but this is a parallel, like playing at the same time which at the moment I don't know yet. I don't know if it's my mind or whatever. And so my question is that, is there such things as parallel life? And my other question is, if it's parallel, can I just can I just disconnect from that? Just, you know, it's not yeah. my business, I can yeah. solve it later. Yeah. <laughs> no, there, there really is no such thing as parallel lives. I'd say no, yeah. it's not like that. There's okay. history. There is history, and uh, but history's over with. You know, history's done. It doesn't keep. It doesn't keep repeating itself, and it doesn't keep going on from there. It's just it's history. So there's that, and you can get into past life in the database and explore those if you like. Uh, but this idea of parallel existences is an idea that was created out of the uh, idea of many worlds, which is basically a physics concept that uh, was still still being worked. It's not, it's not a dead physics concept. People, physicists still work on it. And it came about because of quantum physics. Quantum physics said that this life is really probabilistic, not material. So we have probability that things could happen. Right? So quantum physics realized that materialism wasn't a really a good fit for that probability model of quantum physics. So some enterprising physicists wanting to patch that rift up, you know, between quantum physics and materialism, said, well, there's all every time something unique happens, something new happens, another universe, parallel universe, is set in motion. So every possibility, every possibility is exercised or takes place in one of these parallel universes. So everything that possibly could happen does happen in these parallel universes. Okay, but these aren't these aren't in math or in probability space. These are physical universes. You know, suns, planets, universes, the whole universe, everything that's in it all 
trillion, trillion, quadrillion stars and all the planets and everything, the whole universe, the whole physical thing has to spawn another universe. And because physics can't get into choice in the sense that, well, that was a trivial thing. You know, I scratched my head with my right hand instead of scratching my head with my left hand. Ah, another whole universe. Oh, God, another quadrillion planets and a whole universe just for that. That seems like a waste for something that really doesn't mean, you know, doesn't have any downstream effects of anything. But then you'd have to have a choice maker that said, oh, this is important, worth making a universe for, and this isn't. Well, now you've created a need for consciousness, choice, <laughs> and kind of a, a, a what, a, superior, a, a supreme being or something that makes these choices. So physics had to come to the conclusion that there could be no choices because they don't like the idea of consciousness or supreme beings or things. So they said everything. There are no choices. So if a electron somewhere in the universe goes from spin up to spin down, a whole new universe has to be created. And, of course, I see you smiling because that's obviously ridiculous. You know, you're, you're creating because that new universe that just got created because that electron flipped its spin, that universe is full of quadrillions of electrons. And every time any one of them flips, <laughs> another whole universe is created. So it gets ridiculous to the point that it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's one of these, these things like determinism that, that theoretically could be true, but it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's not practical. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't have any value to it. It's just, I mean, you could, you can state it, but there's, there's nothing behind it. You know, it's just a, a statement. There's, there's no there's no logic really behind it. So it's one of those things. But that's where it came from, many worlds. And physicists are still chugging out their many worlds because otherwise they don't have a way to escape that this is a physical reality. Materialism is correct, and quantum physics is correct. It's probabilistic. The only solution is many worlds. So that's where that comes from. And because that, that was such a sexy idea and people liked it and the, 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 the pop physicists people, writers made it popular, these many worlds, now you have a lot of people picking that up. And what we do is that we can jump between these worlds, you see. So there's, there's another, oh, I don't know, quadrillion of Boris Jung someplace, all doing, scratching their head with this hand instead of the other hand, all over the place, doing every possible thing that there is to do. Now, you see, in MBT, we have something similar, but it's not outrageous, and that is we have databases, and the databases are just calculations. They don't need whole physical universes. They're just calculations. And they have a calculation of all the possibilities, everything that could happen, and the probability that it will happen. Okay? So that's very similar to everything that could possibly happen in a, these parallel universes, but it's everything that could possibly happen along with its probability. But that's just a database, and it's just a computation. And that it's not a fixed computation. It's something as time goes on, you keep 
fixing, you know, the errors in that. Because if you guess wrong, then you have to you have to fix it. And there is a source that says scratching your head with one hand rather than the other. Eh, don't bother with that. We're not going to keep that because, in my theory, there is a consciousness that can make those choices. You know, there's a there's a computer, an AI, if you like, that has a threshold of of meaningfulness that uh, if there isn't if there isn't any downstream connections, you know, it doesn't drive anything. If my behavior doesn't change anything else. It's just my behavior, and it ends there. It's not like if I, you know, drop a bomb on a city someplace. Well, now my behavior dropping a bomb affects millions of other people. So that's important. But if my choice doesn't affect anybody but me, and it doesn't even affect me except trivially, then why keep it? So now you have a a source that in my model, it's everything that could possibly happen and the probability that it will to a reasonable extent, <laughs> yeah. To just to a reasonable extent, we don't keep every detail. We just keep the stuff we think has will be interesting later on and has downstream effects. So that's kind of the difference between MBT and many worlds. But that's where your parallel universe comes. It's very popular now. New Age picked it up. Um, even some gurus, even some of the Eastern things, you know, kind of picked that up. Um, so it's a it's kind of a, a popular uh, concept in our time because it is kind of you know sci-fi and interesting and a lot of movies will play on that but it's uh, it's not really the way the world works because it doesn't make any sense it's totally irrational as far as um, as far as virtual reality goes that you know the computation goes infinite. Because every universe now spins off quadrillions of new universes per microsecond, you know, and so on. And you can see the the numbers just go way out of, you know, way crazy very quickly. So anyway, that's where that comes from. And uh, so I wouldn't put a whole lot of confidence in uh, things that are happening in another parallel universe. But... I when I hear people use those, that kind of terminology, and I use, I hear them using karma, what I do is I just translate it. I don't think that that's something wrong. It's not wrong. It's just a different set of metaphors, and I look at it as well. When they, somebody tells you that you know one of your problems is karma, well, they're telling you that you've got some things you've been working on that you haven't solved yet, and you're still working on them. Well, okay, yeah, that's that's fair enough, right? We all have this karma we're working on. Well, that's all the stuff we're trying to learn. So I just look at it that way. And when somebody tells me that such and such in a parallel universe, that they've gone to a parallel universe and doing something, I think they're using their 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 mind, their intention. They're going to a, a, you know something in the in the database, and they're collecting data from that database because once time goes by, you have the past database, which is everything that could have happened, all the possibilities that could have happened and the probability that they would have happened. So that tends to be where people are getting their information from parallel universes. They're really plucking data out of a database using their intention because the actual parallel universe thing just does not compute. It's too it becomes too big, too quick. It just grows, not even grows exponentially. It's worse than that. 
every particle inside of that universe changes, creates more universes. It's uh, silly science. Thanks, Tom. Very useful. You're welcome. Jan, please go ahead with your question. Hello, everybody. And I wanted to ask a question about emotional information that stays at places because in my experience, like, um, yeah, everything has some kind of emotional imprint or energy imprint, so to say. And if certain people with uh, certain energies come to places, they leave their information mm -hmm. there. Like, it, I mean, it's just information. So there is no place to stay. Like it's just, it is there. Okay. All right. Well, the reason for that, it appears as though things, objects have memories. You can go up to a object. I do that in museums all the time. You walk through a museum, you know, and you'll find something that, you know, it's a mummy or something there. And, and, and you don't have to touch it. That's like believing you have to touch somebody to heal them. You know, you don't really have to touch it. But as soon as you put your mind to it, you can let your mind go with that lifetime that that mummy had, that being that's wrapped, that was wrapped in that cloth so many you know, thousands of years ago. And there it is. You can see it. You can see that person. You can see them interacting. You can see the place they're living in. You can see the other people. And you can kind of hang with them for a little bit of time as they walk down the street and buy stuff at shops and and uh, interact. So you can you can uh, connect to that. You know, you can walk around in England at Stonehenge and you know, walk out to the stones. And again, you don't have to touch them. It's just that's a belief that you actually have to be there. It's not the it's not the place. It's that when you get to such a place like that, your mind tends to ask questions like, "Gee." I wonder what, what what it was. What was it like then? What went on here? You know, you go to a battlefield or do you go to some settlement? And it's just a natural thing for your mind to start wondering about things. Well, that wondering about things is a query and it queries the database. And if you happen to be in a meditative state or you are just a person who uh, has good intuitive connections, then all this information will pour in about that place, that person, that ring, that watch, you know, that fabric of cloth, whatever it is, you can, that's uh, what's it called, the uh, psychometry, right? You can, you can get some, oh, somebody's wristwatch or somebody's earrings or something and pass them around and they can, ah, oh, this is a lady and she's, you know, she's real tall and thin and she's this and she's that. And, Somebody who's adept at that can do that very well. It's getting data out of the databases. A query goes out, you know, <clears throat> who's the person attached to these earrings? So that is what is going on there. It's not that the earrings carry information about their owner or that the, you know, the, the building or the stone or the whatever it is that's, that's out there really is carrying information about those things. People have a belief that if they touch it, they can be in connection with it, but they don't really have to touch it. They can be in connection with it without touching it. That's the similar belief that you have to touch somebody to heal them. It just seems rational to people in our, in our uh, virtual reality. In order to affect something, you need to touch it so the energy can flow, so the information can flow from it through your fingertips and that kind of thing. Well, that's our sense of material process, and it doesn't apply to consciousness. 
you could you could see a picture of Stonehenge in a book and do the same thing. It's all you know, it's all consciousness going on. But when you're there and you see these big stones, then you can't help but wonder, you know, how were they built and where did they come from and what about the people who were there? And as soon as you do that, all of those are queries into the database. If your mind is low noise and disciplined, then you'll get something coherent. If your mind is not low noise and disciplined, you won't. You'll get a mishmash of feelings. And most everybody goes to these places, kind of get that mishmash of feelings. But if you have your intuitive side well-developed, you'll get coherent stories. Okay, that's really helpful. And I would like to pose another question. It's a really quick one because um, I wondered like um, if um, the YouTube algorithm, the random YouTube algorithm is uh, working so random that actual consciousness uh, entities, for example, in different dimensions help um, giving certain people certain videos in the recommendations that they click so that they can get the perfect information at the perfect time for them to develop or get some kind of information. And I thought like the random algorithm is really that random. So and sometimes people say, wow, why do I get this rec recommendation? And suddenly a lot of people get this and it hits the zeitgeist, for example, like that's mm -hmm. in my Yeah. Yeah, well, the reason that, that happens is because the because the uh, the algorithm is supposedly random. Okay, there's lots of uncertainty about what you might want to get. Wherever there's lots of uncertainty, it's trivially simple for the larger conscious system to give you anything it wants. So where there's lots of uncertainty, then it's easy for it to give you something that will give you a lesson. So if you've got somebody who's a seeker, somebody who's trying to learn, somebody who's open to expanding their minds or open to, to new things, and they go to this thing and they punch in, I'm feeling lucky, you know, on Google, or they, uh, you know, ask, you know, YouTube to give them a random, you know, 10 minutes of a video. Well, the system can basically give them any video they want. <laughs> the system could even give them a video that's not in YouTube. And nobody would know because there's so many, you know, billions of videos on YouTube. How would you know that's not in YouTube? And how would you prove it? You see, it's all unknown. That's all uncertainty. The system could give you anything it wants with that much uncertainty. And it, uh, it would be a good lesson for you. You'd learn something. It may be in YouTube. It may not. Who knows? It probably is. There's so much stuff there. I expect the system could find something that it could use. But remember, this this whole you know this whole reality is a virtual reality. That means it's all computed. That means all those videos on YouTube that we see in this virtual reality, all of that is been computed. That's all data in the database in consciousness. That's all you know. It's all available. And consciousness works much faster than we work here. You know, our, our delta T running our time is a Planck time is huge compared to the time scale that, that the conscious system works on. So it's got billions and billions of cycles between every delta T that we have. So it's not like, wow, that computer must be fast to, you know, to keep up with that sort of thing, but it's got lots and lots of time to uh, do whatever processing it needs. So that's how that works. If you are a seeker 
and you will learn from things. All you need is the right nudge. Well, the system's good about nudging people. If you're not a seeker, if you couldn't care less and growth, you know, you can't imagine anybody worrying too much about the nature of reality or growing up or anything else, you know, then those kinds of things won't happen to you. You'll put in something and you'll just get some random stuff back. It won't be, you know, particularly significant to you. Matter of fact, the probability of it being, per, you know, per, completely, you know, of, of being pertinent to you is probably very low. If it's just a random grab of 10 minutes of video or something, then uh, the probability of that actually being useful is probably pretty low. But if you are a seeker and you just could maybe take the next step if you had a little nudge, well, the probability of getting that nudge then is probably pretty high because you've got a situation that the system can easily use without ever being noticed that it does anything, which is its criteria. It has to be plausibly deniable that the system had anything to do with it. So that's why those things, that's why those things work. And a lot of, a lot of things are like that, you know, where you, you, uh, any place that you have chance, then the system can use that to communicate with you. That's how a lot of the prognostication is done. You know, what the, the oldest prognostication tools, a handful of chicken bones. And you take the chicken bones and you throw them out on the ground, and depending on how they lay on the ground and which bones are which and how they're propped up or whatever, then the, the, the I don't know, the person who knows how to do that can read your fortune, tell you what's going to happen, tell you things about the future. Well, because that's a random process, the system then can provide that, that shaman, shaman, with information that's useful. Same with uh, consulting the uh, I Ching, right? You do that through a random process. You know, why is it all these things that are random processes? Reading tea leaves, it's a random process, right? The tea leaves all swirl around and how they'll, how they'll fall out in the bottom of the cup is a random process. Well, you consult the I Ching the same way. You have a random process. That random process gives the system an opportunity to give you whatever's helpful to you. If there were no random process, then it wouldn't work. So you'll find all the prognostication tools mostly have to do with random processes or things so fine that there's a lot of noise in it, and the noise basically provides the random process. You know, the first, like, 100 ways to interpret something, then that's that kind of solves, solves or serves the purpose as the random process. You can interpret it however it comes to you to interpret it. So the ultimate random process is, is grabbing 10 minutes out of YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, a per, that's a pretty random process, even when you're trying <laughs> to uh, get something specific. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Yeah, it fits perfectly with my experience. Like everything gets really more clear and fun. It's cool. <laughs> like like the system nudges one and gives the perfect perfect stuff to learn. <laughs> it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah. That's why it seems to work for some people, and other people it doesn't work for. Some people yeah. could could do that random thing a hundred times, and all they get was nonsense every time. Other people, every time they do it, they get some. Fantastic answer back. 
That's because they're ready to learn. Those fantastic answers are significant and important to them. The other people aren't. You give them a fantastic answer, they wouldn't even notice. <laughs> it, it whizzed right by them, and they, they'd never notice it. So, yeah, that's how those things work. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Isn't it cool how just one simple idea like like virtual <laughs> yeah. reality can, can explain so much stuff? Yeah, it's so simple. <laughs> it just does everything. Like, so simple, really. Yeah. But it's also sometimes I see then all the stuff that happens. Like, I have trouble. I'm dealing with, with all this yeah stuff that's going on out there. And, yeah. That is my challenge right now to stay loving and caring with all the fear and yeah, yeah even so myself. Talk, yeah, we talked about that I think on the very first one. It's that's the challenge. That's the big challenge that most everybody has now. It's particularly challenging for young people because they don't have a lot of context in which to place that that uh, unpleasantness that's out in the world. Once you're once you're old enough, you kind of understand that's just the way people are i mean you run into people like that all the time you know and it's like that's life you have to you have to deal with it and live with it when you're young it's very difficult to deal with it it seems like it crashes your world more so it's it's hard for them because they don't have a enough experience yet to have a context in which they can place it all without being upset by it but yeah that's our that's our thing you know we have to be positive amidst all the negativity and that's what will help change that negativity. All right, Nathan, go ahead with your question. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Hi, Nathan. Hey, I'm. Uh, I'm thinking about the the concept you talked a little bit about in your book around like people's resistance to change and how people even intellectually can like want change and be ready to grow. Like in the last conversation you were talking with Jan about, but at a being level, there is at least maybe parts of a person that are resisting change or not ready. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to just that, that inherent resistance to change. And I'm curious, like how that arc of transition happens where more of a person, different parts of them are on board with, with change, or maybe a, a story, an exemplary stamp uh, story of how, like, what a person looks like when they're really ready for change, and and yeah, maybe a story or just some riffing off of that whole concept. Well, the whole idea of whether you're really ready for change or not depends on how. I don't know. The word that first came to mind was how authentic you are about changing, but it's how committed you are to that change, how much you really do want to change, and how much do you think that that change would serve your image, or how much does that change is something that you you know you should do, but you're not really committed to. I mean, how many people tell you that they'd like to you know, stop smoking or lose weight or begin exercising regularly, and they never do. Now they know they should. Their intellect knows that that would make them healthier. You know, eat better, clean up their diet, you know, stop eating so much junk. Well, almost everybody thinks these things. Okay, I could lose weight, I should exercise, I should do this, I should do that. They don't do it. 
that's something they should do, but they don't. Well, why don't they do it? It's clear that it would be better for them. It's clear they'd be healthier. It's clear that that's better, but they still don't do it. Well, that's because it's they're not committed to it. They think, see, it's, it's part of their image, part of their self-image. I should do this because I read that it's a good thing to do. I should eat better. I should lose weight. I should exercise every day. Yes, of course I should, but that's just the intellect. At the being level, no commitment whatsoever. The intellect thinks it should. So the intellect, the ego, and the beliefs, you know, they may be all on board with that, but it doesn't move anything. You know, that stuff is is like, you know, dross. That's not that's not where growth comes from. So it, nothing happens. Now when they really authentically want to change. I need to lose weight or I need to exercise. When that becomes an authentic thing at the being level, they'll do it. And another odd thing that, that turns out is that if you're addicted to something and you quit because you think you should, like stop smoking, say, and so you don't smoke anymore because people don't like it, you know, and your children don't like it, your spouse doesn't like it, uh, you know, you cough and so on. So you say, I really need to quit. So you do. But you have this, this terrible, long, several years long thing. Every time you sit down and have a cup of coffee, you just want that cigarette. And you have this withdrawal symptom that goes on and on and on. And you see other people smoking and then you want one. And eventually you, you go back to it. You know, it doesn't last but so long. And then you're back to the old habit again. If you actually wanted to quit at the being level, you wouldn't have any withdrawal symptoms. Those withdrawal symptoms are a reflection of your not really wanting to, but doing it anyway. That's the struggle with yourself. If you really want to quit, you just drop those cigarettes and you'll have no interest in them again, ever, period. You won't suffer all the long withdrawal. Now, I don't, it doesn't mean that there is no such thing as withdrawal from anything, but mostly withdrawal mostly disappears, it goes from something that you struggle with for years to something that is trivial if you really are committed to what it is you're doing. So that's, that's why, you know, there's people want to grow up. I'd like to become love. I'd like to get rid of this fear. And, yeah, I see all the bad things it does in my life. But whenever Susie says that, I just get upset. I get angry because it just isn't fair and it's not right. And she just doesn't understand. And, you know, oh, woe is me. And I have to put up with these things. And why does it happen to me? You know, so we have this, this stuff that just goes on. And, uh, even though the intellectual are aware that all that's nonsense, you know, it's all just self-pity and, and you know, stuff that isn't useful, do it anyway, because they're not really committed to getting rid of it. So it's that serious commitment to growing up. It's serious. That's why I tell people, if, if you have this serious commitment to getting rid of fear, if you really want to get rid of fear, you will. You'll do all the right things that are right for you and your situation, that'll all fall into place and it'll all work fine and you will get rid of your fears. But if you just want to get rid of your fears, but 
don't really want to that much because <laughs> it will take work and it will be trouble and may not feel good. And if life is about feeling good and these things, working with fear doesn't feel good, well, then you just can't do that because it's a lot of trouble. Well, that just means that you don't want to so much. You don't want to enough. So that's, that's it. It's just the commitment's all intellectual, but not at the being level. Being level commitment gets things done and gets things done quickly and gets things done without uh, withdrawals or other kinds of problems. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the answer a lot. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of those things that's easy to say, but really hard to do. You know, and you're, you're talking with people, you know, you're a counselor, you talk with people, you know, and, and you try to convince them intellectually about, you know, what's the source of their problem and what they could do to help it and attitudes and behaviors and things. And they all can sit there and go, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Intellectually, they can see all of that. And you think, great, I got through. They got it all. They understand it all. But then you find nothing much happens. <laughs> you know, it's still there, and they're still having a problem, and they still come back. And so, wait a minute, I thought we solved that problem. But we didn't solve that problem because we only solved it in the intellect. And solving it in the intellect is just a little better than not solving it at all. At least solving an in intellect is often first step. But now you need to take the second step, you know, which is getting at a deeper level. So in solving it, the intellect's important, but it's only a first step. It's not the solution. And it's very disappointing to people who are doing therapy or trying to help friends or whatever it is that, oh, they finally get to the bottom of it and they got the answer and it's all clear now and they expect that that's the end of it. But that's only step one. And step two is a lot harder than step one. And most of the time, step one isn't all that easy. But uh, step two is a lot harder. And in a sense, it's a lot simpler. I mean, it's just a matter of commitment. It's just attitude. So that makes it easy. But on the other hand, changing your attitude is something that most people find uncomfortable. And if we only do things that feel good, then it puts it in that too-hard-to-do basket. Is there um, sort of an individual path that's inherent to that process like it's not the same for everyone or is there sort of kind of generally speaking like it's for like maybe for this person it's about just being more authentic with the fact that they don't want to change and just you know maybe that's not what i who i am and just being okay with that for a second or you know like maybe for this person's authenticity or for this person it's x y or z is there yeah. any difference to it yeah there, there is it's different for different people most people uh, deal with that, you know, not being able to get from step one to step two by justifying step one, you know, justifying where they are isn't really all that bad. And, and going to step two is different. It's change. It's going into a space that they're not familiar with that's scary. So you have, an, uh, you have a big problem with justification. Well, I've been getting along for the last 30 years this way and you know, I'm doing all right. So I got a decent job, you know, I got a family and okay, we have problems and we fight a lot and this and that, but this other way is unknown. Who knows what that happened? You know, what will go on there? That's kind of scary. So it's a fear of the unknown is a, is a big part of it. Not wanting to leap into that, get rid of the fear. It's a big change in your life. And 
you have to be willing to take whatever consequences come with that. Well, all the long-term consequences are going to be good, but there may be some short-term consequences that are a little painful. Yeah, so, yeah, fear is a big is a big one. Justify what you got. It's not all that bad. Afraid of change, big change, changing yourself. You won't be the same person anymore. Uh oh, what's that going to do to my world? Yeah, that's a problem. And also, there's the reason that the person's there isn't really because they want to change so much. Somebody else wants them to change. They're having problems. You know, people don't like the fact that they smoke or, you know, they're having problems at home. So their wife says you have to go to a counselor or we have to go to a counselor or something like that. But they really don't want to be there. So some of it is they don't really want to change. Anyhow, they want everything in life around them to change to suit them. That's the change they'd like to see. They no doubt would like things to change. Things aren't very good now. I'd like them to change but I'd like them all to change you know, in my environment so I get to stay the same and everybody else changes to suit me. Well, it's just a, a very self-centered you know, focus. But the very vast majority of people in our culture are very self-centered. So we, you have a lot of that. So fear, self-centeredness, not a lot of commitment in the first place, not even intellectual commitment. You know, those are the things that, that uh, sabotage people actually changing. And if you're a therapist working with people changing, you know that when to have somebody actually change themselves and actually grow up and become a different person, that's far and few between. That doesn't happen a lot. How many people see the problem intellectually? Oh, if you're a good therapist, probably 80%, 90%. But the percent that actually go on to change themselves to who they are, well, when those happen, you really feel good about it because, you know, you've really affected somebody's life long term. But that's the far, that's the far and few between. Unfortunate. That's, that's why it, only, it doesn't only take two or three uh, life experiences for us to grow up. <laughs> it takes two. <laughs> Tens of thousands because we're just not very fast learners because we tend to only do what feels good and we're self-centered. So it's, it's a slow process. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. That helps me put some of my context with people, uh, some of my work with people in the context and really helpful for me too. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Ingo, go ahead with your question, please. Yeah. Um, hello, Tom. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, uh, sorry uh, to ask again, uh, but uh, this topic is dominating my life at this moment. You know, I have a degree in medical computer science. I'm educated in medical topics. I don't watch TV. I don't watch the news. Uh, but uh, the people who do uh, have certain opinions on certain topics. And they uh, tend to um, yeah, reject everything that doesn't uh, correspond to these uh, opinions. And for me, uh, this leads uh, to, to separation within the family and in the circle of my friends. And uh, partly I, I 
also notice that I, I start to reject people who, who support, who support certain ideas. Uh, I don't want this to happen. Um, do you have any, any, any tip or, uh, um, or something how to deal, uh, with this, uh, difference opinion, especially when, uh, other people reject you based on a single statement? Yeah, I have a few things I could say that might help Bingo. Well, you know, some, some of the people that you're around, you can't help but be around because they're family or coworkers or, you know, neighbors or something. So they're in a different category. Then there's other people that you choose, that you, that you have free choice. You can be around them or not be around them. They're not family. They're not neighbors. They're not coworkers. They're just people you can be around. So as far as the, as that last group of people that you can choose to be around, well, then you should probably, as much as you can, choose to be around people that you are compatible with. You know, so if there's somebody in that group that you talk to them and you just you think that they just don't understand much, there's not a whole lot that you could say to them because it's just you, you know, they just wouldn't understand you. You, uh, you know, would disagree with them and there's just no point. Well, then you just don't hang out with people like that, you know. And if you have to hang out with people like that because your friends brought them along, you know, well, then you just don't spend much time talking to them. So you avoid, you avoid conflict where you can by choosing people. But now if it's family and coworkers and neighbors and people you do have to live with and interact with, then the best thing to do is to one, accept them as they are, that they just are the way they are. They have whatever opinions they have. They, they just are that way and accept that and be okay with it. Be okay with it that they are like that, that they have, um, you know, their own issues, their own buttons, their own things that set them off or upset them or annoy them or whatever, and try to be careful not to not to punch those buttons accidentally or certainly not on purpose, but to try to avoid those conversations. So you know if they're they're all wound up around religion, then you just don't bring religious stuff up with them because you know they're going to go off on some some uh, pet peeve or some tirade or something that they're going to have a lot of emotional energy in. So you try to avoid those things and don't push those buttons. And when those buttons get pushed, you try to change the conversation back over to something more neutral. You don't take the bait. You don't go into it and say, well, I really disagree with you, but don't, don't disagree. Just say, yes, okay, I understand. I understand how you feel that way, guys. But uh, do you think it's going to rain tomorrow? You know, you try to take subjects away from that and if you know that if there's certain things you tell them about what you think and how you feel and what you do that they are going to have problems with, don't tell them that. Okay, so I'm saying that there's some parts of you maybe you don't want to share with some people. And there's some parts of some people that you don't want them to share with you. And you have to kind of weave the two of those together in your social connections. So people that you have to live with, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, well, then you can be careful about certain topics and certain things pretty easily. Family and others, 
Well, there's some things you just can't talk about, some things you can't share, some topics that need not to be talked about. And if they keep wanting to talk about them, change the subject, just listen and nod, don't say anything back. Basically take a, a situation that would be, it would turn out negative and let it be at least neutral, if not positive. So that's the thing to do. Now, what does that mean? That means that in these relationships, you can't really be authentic. You can't really be you. You can't be yourself. And you can't necessarily say all those things that you would like to say. But hopefully you'll have other friends that you can do that with. You won't be, you know, alone on an island, can't talk to anybody but yourself. You know, I doubt that's the case. There's probably plenty of people that uh, would you would find interesting to talk to that you could be authentic with. Well, you need to kind of search for those people. Find them wherever you can. Maybe you find them on the Internet. You know, maybe you find them in your social situation. But talk with them about those things that interest you and those people where it sets them off. Just let them be however they are. Avoid avoid the arguments. You're not going to change them. You know, if you thought that you could say something rational that would change their mind, well, you could give it a try, but I give that a long shot. People with beliefs are not affected by rationality. Rationality just annoys them because it makes them feel stupid. But they have this belief. So whenever you whenever you throw facts at a believer, you just anger anger the believer. <clears throat> you don't win the argument. So you kind of have to realize that. So quickly you'll learn whether or not you can actually be helpful to these people by giving them facts they don't know. But more likely, <laughs> it's just keeping those facts they don't know to yourself because they're not going to be helpful. So you take the low entropy path with the people you have to interact with. Make those interactions as as good as possible. Again, let's say this person that you that says things that you know that that are negative towards you. If let's say out of the twenty things that 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 kind of form their personality, let's say that uh, sixteen of them are really negative. Well, just interact with the other four. Whatever those other four characteristics, that's the stuff you talk around. Those are the kinds of things you bring up that have to do with those things and leave the rest of it alone. So if they're interested in whatever, you know, they're interested in sailboats. Well, have you gone sailing recently? Oh, how far did you go? <clears throat> Was it windy? You know, you talk about the things they're interested in, even if that's only three or four topics, and you'll let the rest of it go. So your action, your interaction with such people is shallow. And that's sad. Because if these are people you'd like to be close to, well, you can only be but so close because you can only share but so much of yourself. And it may be shallow. But hopefully you'll be able to enjoy those at least four areas there out of the 20 that you can enjoy and you can talk with them about. And you can still spend time with them. And a lot of times it's not what you talk about. It's just hanging out, being together sitting there, you know, sharing food, whatever it is you do, that's really what's important anyway. It's not really what you say. It's just being in the environment. So you can talk about sailboats, you know, and that's okay. You're in the environment, you're with the people, and maybe it's your uncle or your father or your son or your wife or somebody, but, uh, you know, you can still be with them, interact with them, and it's positive. 
and then that feels good. So you don't walk away with some negative thing toward that person. So your interactions with people will sometimes just necessarily be shallow, and that's unavoidable. Otherwise, your second choice creates more dysfunction. doesn't help. What we're looking for is the low entropy solution. So enjoy those parts of people that you can enjoy. Avoid those parts of people that you can enjoy, that you cannot enjoy. Be careful not to say things that triggers negative responses or opens up into the negative areas of conversation. And otherwise, try to develop relationships with people that you can be yourself, that you can do that. And if you can't, well, then you just keep it to yourself. You know, there's a thing about truth and, and that it's not necessarily helpful to people to always tell them the truth. Sometimes it's better just to hold your tongue. You know, you can't. The truth is only good to tell people when they can use it, when they can learn from it, when they can take it and use it. If the truth just makes them angry or upset, then the truth isn't something that you want to hand to them. It's not helping them. The truth is actually making them regress deeper into, you know, their ego or their belief or whatever. So some people are ready for it. When they're ready for it, it's a beautiful thing to give somebody. And then suddenly they understand. But if they're not ready for it, better to keep it to yourself. There's a lot of things that you'll not share. You know, I don't, I don't share, but maybe 15, 20% of the stuff that I've done, seen, been, I don't share it because it's not going to be helpful to people because other people don't have that same experience. And if they don't have the experience, they're stuck in this place of either believing it or not believing it. Because most people won't just set it aside and say, well, maybe because almost nobody likes uncertainty. So they always have to believe it or not believe it to avoid the uncertainty. And that's not helpful to people. So there's no point telling people things that they can't process and judge based on their own experience. It's not helpful. So in a way, that's a little lonely. Sometimes you'll be with people and still be a little lonely because you can't express yourself. But eventually, you'll get over that and you'll enjoy just dealing with whatever parts of those people you can you can enjoy. And almost everybody, no matter how cranky they are, will have a couple of points that you can you can chat with that's, that are positive. If not, then you know, go sit down someplace else. <laughs> you know, don't uh, just don't talk to them if you can't find anything positive to say. So I don't know. Does that help? Yeah. Yes. Of course. Of course. Um... Yeah, in the last uh, 12, uh, uh, 12 months, my, my, my social circle is cut in half. Um, and it's difficult to cope with that. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, thank you for, for your answer. I, I, uh, I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, well, sometimes it's good for a social circle to shrink. If that social circle is creating more entropy, then it's lowering. Then, you know, cut it in half and say good riddance. But you, sh you could be actively looking for new members to that social circle. You know, go to places where people who think like you do hang out. Uh, go to places that, uh, you know, go 
to those events and those things where thoughtful people who want to discuss important things go. And you may not know of what those might be, but if you look around, you'll find there are things like that. There are people who get together and who who uh, socially meet either online or in person or whatever that discuss all sorts of things. Serious people who care about things, you know, become a part of it. You know, join join Donna's Healing Circle. You know, I mean, you'll find all kinds of people there. They're all open minded and and uh, energetic and full of life. You know, just find things that attract people like yourself and start building that social arena back up again. And it may turn out that they're more online than they are actually physical. Well, that's okay. That's not a, that really shouldn't be a problem. But that's part of getting, you know, that's, that's part of being in this world, dealing with a negative space positively. So you have to deal positive with it. But you can build that social circle back up to, you just may have to search a little bit. Maybe it's not what you're used to doing, but there are groups of people who have interests in in interesting things. You can, uh, you can partake of those. And since a lot of it's on the Internet these days, they can be anywhere in the world. Yeah, they can be anywhere in the world, and you can join. You can join with them. So it's a lot better than it used to be. I know when Vanessa. I don't know if you know who Vanessa is, but she's yeah, a girl uh, in Canada. She does. Uh, they. She's about the fourth time through uh, reading MBT with groups of people, and when she has her little book club thing, reading MBT, she'll have people from twenty different countries. There, they're from all over the place. Are part of it. It's not just people in Canada. It has people from everywhere show up. So there's lots of things like that that are available. But you do have to spend time with your family and your children and you know all your loved ones and that kind of stuff. And you just do it the best you can and realize that if it if it can't be but so good, accept that. Don't be upset or angry that it that it's not better than it can be. It is what it is. And accept that without any anger. Accept that with being positive. It's okay that that's the way it is. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe this is the next test. No? <laughs> yeah, Who knows? Exactly. All life is a test. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom, that wraps up the 77th fireside chat and i would like to extend out an invitation to all of those people who um joined vanessa's book club to come and join the fireside chat and ask their questions mm -hmm. that'd be great thank you everyone tom campbell here i and mbt events hope you liked this video we now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured. We will always continue to do what we can 
It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.